On this episode, Rope Access, Why You Should Hire a Guide, Can Those Skinny Climbing Ropes Hold a Sasquatch, and The Raiders. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Your hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Welcome, everyone. Today on the Almost There Adventure podcast, we have Elena Arenz. She is an amazing climber, an instructor, a guide, and all-around adventure woman. So, um, Elena, I'm going to go ahead and let you do a better job of introducing yourself than I am. Well, hello, everyone. It's uh, great to see you again, Severia, and can chat with y'all today. Um, yeah, my name is Elena Renz, and um, I am an AMGA certified rock guide, and uh, that's my, been my primary um, occupation for the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. Um, it's my full-time career, um, but with the COVID, I'm kind of transitioning into a new, new arena called Rope Access, and I'm um, also an IRATA certified level one technician, so I'm taking my rope skills that I've uh, honed over the last 25 years of climbing and applying them in a more, uh, or in a different way, which is really new and exciting uh, for me. What was that last acronym that you said? Um, IRATA. What's IRATA? It's International Rope Access Technician Association. So it's equivalent of the AMGA um, in the rope access world. And so for those who may not know, um, let's We'll go backwards. So let's start with rope access. Like, so what? what is rope access? What does that mean? Rope access is a means of accessing any hard to reach location to perform any sort of like trade or work. Um, and so that could be, you know, anywhere you can't get to with like a boom lift or scaffolding um, or traditional means of like walking up to do any sort of uh, type of trade labor. Um, so rope access is used in a lot of, across a lot of different industries, um, from construction to renewable energies like wind, um, you know, rock mediation uh, for all kinds of like random random projects out there in the world. Um, the list could go on and on, but uh, just basically a ways to meet to access a hard to work uh, location. What are some of the more interesting or curious places you've worked so far? Um, well, I just wrapped up work on the new uh, Las Vegas Raiders Stadium. Um, my boyfriend owns a company who performs all these work uh, and, and all these um, different places. And so I was employed by his company and we were in the stadium uh, doing a wide range of jobs from hanging you know, steel, creating the cable netting roof to hanging the sound paneling um, in the, under the completed roof, painting all the beams, the trusses. Um, it was a, a wide scope of, across a lot of different trades. I hope you treated it like the church that it is. I'm a Raider <laughs> fan, so so this is like, I'm gonna like alienate 90% of our listening audience and talk about football for a minute. <laughs> Just for a minute, I promise. So this is like painting the Sistine Chapel for you, right? Exactly. I, I hope you had that reverence while you were dangling hundreds of feet from the ceiling that you knew you were in a, a very holy, beautiful and magnificent palace where hopefully the Broncos will be losing. Wondering why you jumped when she said Raiders. Literally, Jason was like, <laughs> Like earthquake? Oh my gosh. I just drove by it though, and actually the stadium looks looks amazing. From the outside, obviously I haven't seen it from the inside, but it looks pretty incredible. 
It was incredible. It was a great project to be a part of, for sure. So you're climbing around inside the building or outside the building with ropes and whatnot? Uh Inside the building. Um, So uh, Rigging International Group, um, my boyfriend's company, secured a bunch of contracts to perform a a lot of the work um, from, you know, the beginning stages of construction to the finishing stages of the construction. Um, So in the early part of the project, we... Um, we're building the cable net roofing system and, um, you know, getting to where the steel workers couldn't to, you know, tighten down all the nuts and bolts that literally are holding the place up. <laughs> um, and in the end we were there cleaning all the, and painting all the, all the finish work and doing all the things, hanging signage and, um, just making it look like a, a finished, finished product. That, that sounds like it's, there's a, a certain percentage of that at least that is, is more fun than work. How would you break it down? <laughs> yeah, it was, it's definitely fun for me having, you know, guided for so long. It was really interesting um, to use my rope skills and my, you know, comfortability at working at height um, in a totally new setting. So whenever you're, you're doing something new, it's, you know, it's exciting to be a part of something that isn't, you know, something that you've kind of been doing for so long and you get to learn lots of new skills along the way and I've always been an advocate of learning in life. Um, i always said that you're, you're never done learning and if you think you know it all then you, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> well, why don't we go a little bit back to the beginning and like when did you first start climbing? Like how did you get started in it? Um, so I started climbing uh, when I was 20 years old um, in Austin, Texas. Um, I worked in a shopping mall selling pottery at a little kiosk and uh, right next to that kiosk um, there was a restaurant and uh, so I'd always go into the restaurant to get lunch you know use the restroom as the closest restroom I could use Um, and I befriended the staff there and the manager uh, is my friend Seiji Ishii and um, he was a climber and so he would tell me about all of his you know weekend adventures you know we caught up you know, at work on Monday, and I thought that, you know, climbing was a new concept for me. Um, it wasn't in my worldview at all. I didn't even know it existed, but uh, he offered to take me and teach me, and so he took me actually to uh, a climbing gym in Austin, Texas at the time. It's called Pseudo Rock, very old school, one of the original gyms in the country. Um, so he took me there and kind of showed me the ropes, so to speak. And he's like, Whoa, you know, you're pretty, you're pretty good at this. He's like, you know, if you're interested, we're going, you know, next weekend, if you want to join us, you're welcome to. And that just started a lifelong love of climbing since then. That was 1994. When that, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and Elena, you have, do you, um, I know you own, do you still own the climbing company out in the um, The New River Gorge yeah Mm -hmm. Red River Gorge yep yep yeah the New River Gorge West Virginia Um, I own a guide service there called New River Mountain Guides Um, I've owned that since 2002 Um, but it was an existing guide service it was actually started by Roxana Brock um, who was a badass climber and um, she's I've always looked up to her and been inspired by her she actually lives in Las Vegas where I live now and so we've been able to uh you know have new climbing adventures together but it was kind of cool you know I was one of the few uh, women-owned guide services at the time and it was started by women you know even before my time there so it's 
pretty awesome to carry on that legacy. Um, I know personally that you are an amazing uh, also teacher and instructor, so not just a guide, but um, you teach for the AMGA. So share a little bit about, you know, what led you from like climbing into guiding into teaching? Like, I'd love to know sort of what that progression looked like for you. Um, so yes, from my climbing, um, I very quickly fell in love with it after Seiji introduced me to it. And, um, I got a job at that climbing gym that I first climbed in. And so I was teaching very early on. I didn't have any friends that climbed other than, than him. Um, and so I got a job at the gym so basically I could afford to climb through college. I was a poor college student. And uh, um, so basically as a way to like fuel my fire. <clears throat> um, so I started teaching and people would ask me to take them outside climbing. And so on the side, I would take people climbing outside totally unaware that there were just, you know, training and like insurance and the liability. I was just psyched to have extra like beer money, honestly. <laughs> But, um, so, uh, that's, I, that's how I got into teaching. It was very informal. Um, and then fast forward, um, I, uh, was married for a time uh, to a professional climber and part of our, um, the way that we made money and fueled our, our gas tank to travel around the country climbing was teaching clinics, um, in climbing gyms. Um, so we would set up these instructional clinics in these gyms and, um, so that's, you know, continue my instructional, you know, experience. Uh, we own and operate a campground in El Petro, Chico, Mexico, um, called Rancho Cerro Gordo. And um, people, again, would come down and be like, oh, I want to go to the top of Space Boys or Snot Girls, all these big uh, multi-pitch climbs. And so, um, again, no training or certification, insurance or anything. I would take people's money to, and guide them up these things that they didn't have the experience or skill to do. And looking back at, you know, what I know now, like what an idiot I was. <laughs> um, and so, uh, after our time in Mexico came to an end, we moved to the New River Gorge and a friend was selling, uh, the guide service. And so I bought the guide service off him and um, decided it was time to kind of formalize my training and education with the American Mountain Guide Association. I uh, figured if I was the boss lady, I should have a training and a certification that says I know what the heck I'm doing because I'm you know, just a young, young girl, you know, you know, 30 years old at the time. And people look at me and see, um, see what they want to see. You know, and I'm not your typical um, like mountain guide kind of profile. So I felt it was really important to get that training and certification then. How long were those certifications around? Because I mean, climbing was kind of still pretty less lesser known back in those days, right? I mean, it wasn't as big as it is now. So did they even have all these training programs and certifications? I mean, I mean, probably what you were doing is what everyone was doing, right? I mean, it just kind of come up with the business and with the with as it became more popular and more organized? Sure. Um, so the American Mountain Guide Association has been around, it was formed in 1979. Um, and it was like a loose collection of guides who were um, gathered in the Grand Tetons. Um, or mountain guiding, um, you know, was pretty, pretty common in those realms and also in the Pacific Northwest. And of course, over in Europe, it had been well established. But as far as, you know, organization in the United States, it was very loosely um, structured. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, the organization started then in a response to um, an insurance crisis in the United States. Um, it was really hard to get liability insurance as an individual guide, and so they formed the organization to help secure 
uh, liability insurance for American guides. Um, you also um, teach for the Warrior's Way. Mm-hmm. Are you a Warrior Way trainer? Do you want to tell a little bit about what that is and how that fits into the climbing ethos? Sure. So uh, the Warrior's Way is um, a mental training program uh, or a way to approach climbing that was created by Arno Ilgner, um, who has been a long-term mentor of mine. Um, I first met him when those years when I was on the road teaching those instructional clinics as a professional climber, a semi-professional in my, in my case. Um, uh, and I met him at, in Tennessee, and at the time he was working on a book called The Warrior's Way, which is based on the teachings of, of Don Juan and this you know, warrior literature that's out there. Um, but in its essence, Warrior's Way training is a way to um, improve your commitment and reduce fears when you're climbing. Um, and it's a very um, practical approach to it where you learn to separate um, how you focus your attention when you're climbing. And there's two different tasks when you're climbing. You're either climbing or you're resting. And the way you use your attention in either of those spaces looks very differently. Most climbers will, you know, intermix the two and, um, you know, they tend to lose commitment if you're not uh, focusing on moving or doing or stopping and thinking, resting and gathering information and processing and making decisions. And so the training really, um, it walks people through how to do that, um, separate those two attention skill sets so they can be more committed and diminish fears while climbing. So, um... Just, I guess let's let's change gears a little bit. What are some of your favorite like climbing adventures or your favorite places to climb that, that, that you have? Oh, my favorite places to climb are always the ones I haven't been to yet. <laughs> um, I've you know I've been fortunate to travel all across uh, the U.S. and Europe and spent a lot of years in Mexico. Um, as far as favorite places to climb, I mean the Potrero and Chico will always have a special place in my heart. Um, I spent a lot of my formative years learning uh, the skills that I apply to my work trade now there. But um, gosh, there's just too many places to list um, as far as favorites. I currently live in Red Rock in, in, here in Las Vegas, Nevada. And um, Red Rock is great because it offers a wide variety of climbing styles um, from bouldering, which is climbing with foam mats and small, you know, car to house size boulders. Um, with no technical equipment to multi-pitch walls, um, you know, that are located around here and everything in between. Um, I really value a varied um, climbing experience, and I don't want to be pigeonholed as one type of climber. I'd really like to be well-rounded in all the disciplines, and so this place offers um, all of those things. What are some of your notable climbing achievements? Oh, my notable climbing achievements. To me, they don't feel so notable because... (laughs) <laughs> you just did them. Everybody, everybody seems to be a rock climber these days. And there's a lot of badass people out there doing badass things. But um, climbs that are were important to me personally. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to climb El Capitan with Kitty Calhoun, my business partner in Chicks. And um, that was my first big wall. And uh, climbed El Cap via you know, the longest way up the thing, the double direct. Uh, which was very uh, educational experience. Um, so that was, you know, when you tell somebody you're a climber who knows nothing about climbing, you're like, oh, Everest and El Cap, 
you know, those are the two things that where your mind goes. Um, so I can say, yes, I have climbed El Cap. I will never climb Everest. I'm not really interested in standing in line in hypoxic environments and being cold. <laughs> Losing brain cells as you stand there. <laughs> um, so yeah, climbing, climbing El Cap is definitely a big achievement and goal of mine. Um, I've climbed one 513 sport climb in my life, and um, it's called Apollo Reed at the New River Gorge. And, um, you know, that's kind of a benchmark grade that, again, every climber, or maybe not every climber, but a lot of climbers out there find significant. And um, it was significant for me because I spent you know, over three years working on that route. Um, and I can remember, you know, from the first day of not even being able to get, you know, three bolts off the ground to the day I finally clipped the chains uh, was really special. Because uh, my friend Seiji, who taught me how to climb in Austin, Texas, who pulled me out of that shopping mall, um, was there visiting me. And he was the one belaying me on that day when I sent that. That's that. awesome. It was super special. That is so cool. Yeah, I think um, yeah. it's interesting that you said it took three years to like achieve that goal. Because I think nowadays with social media and like, you know, people don't realize a lot of times, like they just see like the end product of like, oh, like this person just sent this route and they don't realize I think a lot of times the work and the time that it goes to getting to that one to getting to that level and then sometimes just do a climb like that you project something for sometimes years to figure out the intricacies of it and to really you know be able to get it I think um you know especially with gym climbing now and stuff it's it's like easy it's almost like easy to achieve sort of physical goals quickly right and I think there's you know we have this culture in our country where everything's like instant you know instantaneous and gratification now and um but you know things things take work and things that are important to you gotta um appreciate the process of it um it doesn't come easy for everybody and there are many times where i walked away from that climb and would go back the next season and you know i thought it was an impossible goal um but uh, just continually throwing myself at it and learning the micro beta and training and getting stronger um, you know, all that work paid off, you know, eventually. I'm really curious about this because my, I'm not a climber. I've done a little bit of climbing. I've taken some, a, a class or two, uh, years ago. Um, and that's not really not my thing. You know, I, I'm more into backpacking and hiking and peak bagging, but nothing really technical. And, um, but even some of those things, like, you know, if you want to do a through hike, you have to do a lot of preparation. You have to do a lot of research. You have to train. You have to learn. You know, have to make sure you have the right gear. You know, you have to. There's a lot of work that goes into that. It's not just show up, hike it, and, you know, call it a day. So I'm curious to know, like, this particular project that you were working on for three years, what are some of the things that you would do? when you weren't attempting to climb it, you know, what are the things that you're doing to help you be successful at it eventually after three years? Um, so a large part of it is learning, learning the route intimately and being able to um, know exactly how to hold on to the individual holds. Um, Cause you know, shifting your your grip, like even like a millimeter in either direction means you're, you know, you may not be on the hold as perfectly as possible to hold on to it. Um, <clears throat> but that climb in particular is more of a gymnastic, like power endurance climb. And so it had meaning it, um, 
It required about a bit of endurance and you had to be able to hold on through a pump. And when you're climbing, um, you develop this pump in your forearms. It's basically lactic acid and blood like filling your filling your arms and until you can't grip anymore and your hands just spontaneously open at that point. Um, and so the, the training to get through that um, was getting on the climb and holding on even when my brain was telling me that I could not hold on anymore. I'd force myself to do one more move, one more move. And um, it's surprising how many more moves that you can do if your brain allows you. And so my mental training really came in um, to play there a lot because your mind wants to escape these uncomfortable um, positions. And you know your arms are screaming that they can't hold on and your brain is reading that information and it wants to retreat away from that. But um, that's when it's important to dig in and do another move and, and see what happens because your mind will create these perceptions that may or may not be true. And the only way to discover whether or not they are true is to engage it and continue pushing on. And um, I think a lot of people out there would be surprised at how much more they're capable of doing if they allow them to uh, go into that space. I feel like that's a good life lesson. Absolutely. <laughs> whether you're hanging onto the side of a rock, whether you're like reaching some adversity in your life, you know, like that fight or flight, you know, like if you can, that maybe there are times when you should push through and just push a little further and see how much more you're capable of. Humans are creatures of comfort. And so we want to go and be in our comfortable places. But a lot of times that personal growth happens when you're pushing the edges of that comfort zone from that, that known space to the unknown. And if you can just push it just a little bit um, in an incremental way, you can convert those kind of scary unknown places to something that's more comfortable. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you, all these other possibilities uh, will present themselves. Yeah, I often say that like part of, I think, one of the exciting things about the outdoors in general is sort of learning to embrace that discomfort, right? Because there's, when you learn how to embrace that discomfort and realize that it's just discomfort, right? It's not the end of the world, maybe. Like, and you can push yourself a little bit further. When you get back to the comforts of our real life and the comforts of our air-conditioned homes and, you know, being able to have exactly the right clothes that we want to wear all the time and, you know, dry, not dry, <laughs> you know, umbrella in the rain, whatever it is, um... Yeah, it just feels like real life becomes a little bit easier, of real life, we'll call it, once you've sort of embraced that discomfort of the outdoors and you realize, oh, maybe I'm a little tougher than I think I am. Right, absolutely. And Jeff, I'm sure you've experienced that on, you know, the big peaks that you, you've hiked. You know, it's sometimes those blisters on your feet and your knees are hurting, you're, all your legs are screaming, you're dehydrated, you're like, God, I just need to put one foot in front of the other and keep marching on. That, that was me yesterday. So <laughs> yesterday, that was how I felt. So yeah, I had a long day. A long, hot day. It was in, it was in the mid-80s. And, and you're forgetting all the bug bites. I'm head to toe right, bug yeah. bites. So, yeah, don't forget those. Do you ever climb high enough to get away from the mosquitoes and the and the flies and all the awful insects? Oh, sometimes I'll follow you up there. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> yeah, oh, we don't, you know, so... <laughs> So, so how did you transition from doing, you know, the, the guiding and the rock climbing and the, and the outdoors thing into the like more industrial and, and you know, occupational side of it? Um, so my boyfriend, Chad, he, um, <clears throat> excuse me, owns a company called Rigging International Group. And one of the arms of that company is a training center. 
Um, and so I, I got the opportunity to sign up. There's a you know empty slot in one of the classes. And um, as I mentioned before, I'm always, um, you know, I really value training and education and learning. And um, it seemed like a good um, thing just to try out to expand my rope knowledge and my knowledge of technical systems. Um, because in rope access, how it differs from rock climbing, while we're using ropes for both of those, in rope access, it's a two rope system. And um, uh, the equipment is a lot more <clears throat> um, heavy duty. And uh, so I've through my um, climbing work, I've also done some training um, with search and rescue teams. And so I got an interest in you know, learning technical systems and haul systems, such as haul systems and rope rescue. Um, and it just really fascinates me. Um, and so the opportunity came up to take, take the training, and, uh, which is a four-day course and a one-day practical assessment. And... Um, you know, it's a pass or fail, and the, the margin for pass or fail, I would say, is much more narrow than it is for the rock climbing uh, instruction that I've done. Um, but in the end, you end up with a rope access certification that um, allows you to work, you know, in any wide range of industries. What percentage of rope access certifi certifications do you think women hold versus men? Oh, it's way, way fewer than in rock climbing. Uh, for sure. Um, I would say, guessing off the top of my head, maybe 5%. It's pretty, pretty low. And it's a, it's a decent sized industry. Cause I mean, like it's, I mean, it's literally international, right? I mean, it, it happens all over the place. Yep. Yep. It does happen all over the place. Um, you know, and it is a, a, a way to access a work location that's non-traditional um, and so a lot of that revolves around trade different trades from you know welding um, is you know one one example of that and there's just not that many women um, doing these uh, sort of um, these types of occupations so very cool. Were you the only only woman up in the rafters in the stadium? Um, actually, Rigging International Group is um, has taken initiative to hire more women. Um, there's a there's a lot of climbers that work for the company, and so um, you know, on some of the jobs, yes, I was the only woman um, on the on the job at times. But other times, you know, there are like three, four, or five of us on a team of like you know twenty. Um, so Ringing and National Group has been really, um, you know, proponent of getting, uh, women into the industry. Um, and so that was great to work along the, you know, the other, you know, the sisters of the rope, so to speak. Nice. Now, are you still going to do, do guiding and like outdoor guiding, like traditional climbing guiding, or, or are you sort of, have you moved past that in your career? No, nope. Um, I'm keeping all my options open. Um, <laughs> I'm like, no! <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, as a as a climbing guide, it's a very seasonal occupation. You kind of have to follow the the good weather and the you know follow the seasons, so to speak. And um, it's a bit of the same in in the rope access world as well, um, where the work tends to be more project based. So projects have a start and a finish, and um, until the next project comes along, you're kind of you know making your ends meet so I foresee um, keeping a, a toe in both waters but it's been great to you know put my attention in a, in another profession because um, it's allowed me to 
refocus on my climbing goals and kind of take that back as something that um, is more personal to me rather than always giving it to others, uh, which is what we do as climbing guides. You know, we allow people to, uh, we teach people skills and give them experiences they couldn't <clears throat> do otherwise. And um, while there's a lot of um, joy in giving that, um, it kind of, you know, is an energy um, that, takes it away from your own personal side of things. And so it's been nice to find more balance there. Elena, do you have, what are your sort of next big goals or projects or, you know, plans, climbs that you have in mind that you'd like to do someday? Maybe it's, maybe you don't have a date in mind, but it's something in the, you know, sort of in the, your back pocket that you'd like to do. Um, I'd like to, um, a place that's been on my you know wish list for a long time is Patagonia, and it's it'd be great to go and climb in you know these iconic places around the world and more alpine and um, you know kind of use my rock climbing skill set in a completely you know more adventurous kind of way to get away from people, <laughs> go to more. Um, you know, obscure places like uh, not that Patagonia is, is at all obscure, but um, I don't know. I really love traveling and experiencing new places and cultures through climbing. I've never been to South America, um, so that that place is at the top of my list. And in order to do that, there's going to be a lot of preparation needed on my part. You know, spending time in Yosemite and the Bugaboos and the Canadian Rockies and gaining more um, alpine climbing experience. Um, those are kind of the long-term goals, but, um, the thing that's adventure that's been most on my mind now, um, I've gotten into, uh, dirt biking in the last, uh, two years, um, at the age of 40, whatever, and, um, which is kind of insane. But, um, one thing that, uh, my boyfriend Chad and I really want to do is ride the Trans-America Trail, um, which is, uh, mostly dirt roads and fire roads and, you know, not following the pavement from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast. So that's that's an immediate. Have you heard of um, Have you heard of Rawhide Adventures? I haven't. Mm -mm. I'll have to hook you up with them. So they, um, a friend of mine, is an instructor for them. So they teach how to ride and how to do touring off road with like you know, basically like long distance touring. Um, so they do a whole class. It's BM. It's the BMW like touring bikes. But yeah, Rawhide Adventures that would be a cool. If you're gonna go cross country, yeah. Maybe that'll be my next instructional. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> your next self uh, self learning. Yeah, sign exactly. up. So what do you, what is your advice for someone say like myself who's not in any way physically designed for climbing, more like belaying kind of physically? Like is 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 it even worth it if you're like a, a sasquatch to to like kind of try to climb or like or how do you approach it as someone that is not in any way? built to be like a climber well uh, uh, you just gotta give it a try i mean there's a lot of um there's a stereotype out there that you have to be you know a non-sasquatch to use your worrying person to enjoy climbing but um there's a lot of different ways to enjoy climbing um and indoor climbing gyms are a great way to get kind of familiar with the equipment and how it's used um, but like Jeff was mentioning, there's a lot of other, you know, disciplines in it, including peak bagging and, and hiking up um, mountains as well, where there's more, um, there's less technical um, skill involved. And so that's going to be a great way uh, for anyone of any fitness level or experience level to get out and, um, you know, enjoy a summit, getting to the top of something. 
Um, and so that would be my recommendation. I have to say, uh, Jason and I both own, we, we both per acquired our first uh, climbing harnesses this year. Yeah, we did. Yeah. But that's for mountaineering, not, not for, not for like, uh, you know, walk. We're, we're, we're not going to go up El Capitan anytime soon. No, uh, that's... no. <laughs> not, 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 well, not, you want to start somewhere. You know, yeah. I think that that's great. Um, of course, I would always recommend hiring a guide. Um, there's a lot of that goes into um, the technical side of climbing and hiring a guide, a certified guide. Somebody who is trained and has the permits and insurance, um, all the things in place uh, to teach you how how to do it safely. You know whether it be you know that's the way that you access these places all the time, or if you want to learn to do it on your own. Um, there's a lot of talented um, certified guides out there who can help you, you know, reach these goals. And we hired a guide. I, I don't think either of us would feel comfortable on something like Rainier without a without a guide. You know. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it was funny because I was just been backpacking in Glacier National Park for the last couple of days, and and um, every campsite I was in had a, at least one of them was taken by a, a guided trip, and to me that just seems like really you're hiring a guide to do this, but I guess you know I've been doing it all these years, and and if you're not you know if you've never done it before, I, that is a good way you know maybe just having that one person to you know that that has the experience like here's how you set up your tent, here's how you do this, and of course they cook for them. I I, I was kind of looking at it going. I wonder how much this costs just for the cooking part of it. You know, can yeah. I just hire them to come along and cook my food and clean the dishes for me and I'll do all the rest? Is that like a less lesser price? I, I was curious, but I didn't know. Probably not. I'm guessing not. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's important though to remember that climbing just like any other activity, like there's a whole spectrum of like where you can start and like, you know, easy to hard. And so I think a lot of people self-limit themselves, Jason, like just like, oh, well, like I'm a bigger person or I'm this or I'm that I'm not, you know, all the I'm nots, like all the reasons why you can't do something when the reality is, you know, there's probably a, there are probably multiple lots of climbs out there that you could do as a beginner who's never done it before. And again, that's a great reason to have a guide, right? Because they, that's their job is to assess and to find something that is doable and that you can learn on and that, you know, to set you up for success, hopefully. So I would say just like most things in the outdoors and like, and you're not going to start with some super hard thing. You start with something easy, you know, and like, don't just have realistic expectations for sure. I, I did actually take a class in Joshua Tree in the late 90s, but I, I to be honest, just didn't enjoy it much, probably mostly because I am a Sasquatch. You know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, this this, yeah, my hands hurt. They're all cut up. I'm like, this is, this is I'll go, I'm going to go hike. You know, that's just more my thing. Yeah, <laughs> and that's fine too. It's a really tough place to learn to climb. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, kind of, you know, it's an old, old school climbing area. Um, and it's, it's super challenging. So um, I would encourage you to try it again somewhere else. <laughs> go to Red Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then, and then here's the other thing. I don't necessarily trust the ropes. So as like a PhD, what I'm assuming is the equivalent of like a PhD, a doctor of ropes. Mm -hmm. Tell me why I should trust a rope. <laughs> me, like like probably three times your size, should, should trust a rope, you know, <laughs> to catch me when I'm falling and not just rip out of the mountain. 
Yeah, I hear that a lot from people who are new to climbing. You know, they see this skinny rope and like, how the heck is that thing going to support me? Um, well, the ropes are engineered to hold thousands and thousands of pounds and they can hold a Sasquatch. They can hold, you know, <laughs> very easily. That's, that's a light duty. Um, and so just understanding that the, the equipment is engineered and it meets um, uh, UIAA uh, certification, uh, European CE certification to do the job means it's been tested and um to with be able to stand with certain forces and um and so it's absolutely trustworthy if it's used correctly of course you know equipment in the wrong hands of somebody can be misapplied and then it becomes dangerous it's the knowledge and experience of how to use the equipment is where the rubber kind of meets the road so um again you know hiring a guide to make sure things are set up correctly to be able to experience it and understand how the rope systems work and the safety system and the equipment all comes together um, will go a long way to building your trust in the, that skinny little rope. So I can eat a lot more cheeseburgers and carbs and I would still be <laughs> safe. Dang, dang, dang. That's good to know. Good to know. Just in case I change my mind and I, and I, and I want to try it again. Yeah, absolutely. So I know, um, Elena, you are not only an AMGA, which is the Mountain, American Mountain Guide Association guide, you're also an instructor, you teach their courses. Um, I know personally um, that one of your passions is teaching women in the outdoors, and you do that through a number of different ways. The AMGA um, has started doing women-only courses um, and uh, courses for underserved groups. I know you're one of the few uh, AMGA in instructor providers um, which makes you sort of special in that respect. And um, you're an owner of, or uh, yeah, you haven't been involved with chicks climbing for years and years. So do you want to talk a little bit about more specifically about um, how you empower women in the outdoors? Sure thing. Um, so when I started climbing back in the you know, mid nineties there, I think I could count all the female climbers you know, in my community of Austin on, on one hand. Um, there weren't very many. Um, as climbing has become more popular, there's more and more women getting into the sport. Um, and so I've always had an interest of, you know, getting my girlfriends in the climbing because, you know, I didn't have girlfriends that climbed back in those days. And so if I wanted climbing partners, I had to teach them. Um, and so that's kind of spurred, you know, a career long um, desire to help women become more independent uh, climbers and not so dependent on their male, uh, typically male counterparts. Um, and so I got involved, um, and with women's instruction, um, first with chicks, um, it was just chicks with picks at the time owned by Kim Reynolds. Um, that was the only, uh, women's uh, organization, you know, devoted to climbing at the time. And I can remember working, you know, that climbing gym in Austin, Texas, back in the mid nineties and seeing the ads in the magazine in thinking ice climbing, that sounds really cool, but I can't afford to do that. I'm a college student and I'm barely making it by as it is. Um, but I first became aware of chicks back then and um, fast forward to the New River Gorge when I bought the guide service, um, Kim Reynolds who founded Chicks has started branching into more rock climbing programs. And um, I can't remember how I first met her. Maybe I reached out to her. She reached out to me. Um, actually, it was through Sterling Rope. Sterling Rope was doing women's programs. Um, and they wanted to do something on the East Coast. And so Sterling 
um, Carolyn Brodsky, who, um, you know, woman owner of this rope company for, for climbing, um, put me in touch uh, with Kim, and we started offering uh, the program at the New River Gorge. And so that's how I got my introduction to chicks. And so it was really cool to be able to work for this company that I remember seeing ads in the magazine, you know, my first years of climbing and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, that would be so cool to be able to do that. Um, and so that's, that's how I got my foothold uh, in there. And then um, fast forward another decade, you know, and um, been living here in Las Vegas and uh, my boyfriend Chad is you know way into ice climbing and so um, he was spending uh, some time up in Uray, Colorado climbing around there and um, I flew up there and met him and it happened to be the weekend that Chicks with Picks was offering um, their annual fundraising event which they held to raise money for women's shelters uh, in Colorado and so I went to that uh, we went to that and um, there was a live auction and Chad bid on a guided day of mixed climbing with Don Glantz and he won and gave, gave me this gift. And, um, I went up to Don, um, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm the winner of the climbing day with you. You know, I'm just this goober ice climber. You want to be ice climber gal. And she's like, Oh, she's like, you, it's you. She's like, we'll just go climbing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's, you know, Don kind of, you know, um, you know, we had our day out together and we became friends and, um, the following season, I wanted to continue my ice climbing education. So Chad and I went back up there and, um, I called Don up and I was like, you know, we're coming up for, we want to stay for a month and we need a place to stay. Do you know of anything? He and Don uh, was like, well, call Kitty Calhoun. I think she might have a garage apartment available. So I was like, call Kitty Calhoun? Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> She's like another, you know, huge climbing hero of mine. And so um, I called Kitty Calhoun out of the blue, and I was like, hey, I, I don't know if you remember me, but my boyfriend Chad and I are coming up, and Don, you know, mentioned we might have a place to stay. And... Um, so we went up and stayed in Kitty's garage apartment and became uh, good friends with her and her husband, Jay. And uh, during that second uh, season of climbing ice up there, um, Kim was interested in selling the business and, um, you know, having that history with, with Chicks Rock and, uh, and a newfound love of ice climbing. It just all kind of came together for five of us to buy Chicks from, from Kim. And so that was... The, uh, five years ago now, almost six. Um, and AMGA has also started um, doing women-specific programming to sort of elevate and encourage more women guides in the community. Um, tell us a little bit about those programs, because that started right after I took my class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, um, I'm a, for the American Mountain Guide Association, I'm a single pitch instructor trainer. Um, I was the first uh, female trainer that they had in the country. Um, I didn't realize it at the time, <laughs> um, but um, I started getting a lot of requests from women like, hey, I really want a female instructor. Um, and so the, about that time, um, you know, the whole Me Too movement, I think really spurred like this interest in um, 
you know, giving women opportunities that maybe haven't had them before, giving them a, a space where they felt, you know, safe and secure of, you know, seeking out this kind of technical training, um, just in climbing the lot of areas, of course. Um, and so the ANJ started these women's um, single pitch instructor programs. Um, and the pilot program happened here in Las Vegas. And um, Tracy Martin, another um, awesome female uh, guide and a very close friend of mine, um, we um, got to teach that course to, you know, 12 women. Um, and it was women and people who were underrepresented, um, you know, in, in the climbing community. And so that was really, really cool to be able to offer that um, mentorship to this new um, new batch of up-and-coming female guides, you know, from people of color to people who um, identify LGBTQ+, plus, um, and really kind of create diversity within a very, very much white male-dominated uh, occupation. Yeah, it's been awesome to see sort of that progression, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, since that first one, there's um, we've offered three different courses: um, Red Rock, Joshua Tree, and one in Boulder, Colorado. And um, last summer, I ran an assessment for the first um, course graduates, or the first. I guess that's a I don't know if that's the correct way to say it or not. Um, but there's now uh, four new certified single pitch instructors, um, people people of color, which is really exciting. So, uh, really. You know, even before um, the Black Lives Movement, you know, was kind of moving, um, had this huge, like, momentum building, um, the AMJ was really supportive of um, diversifying, um, you know, the, the organization and representing people um, of all, you know, color and race, religion, gender identities. It's been pretty exciting. Well, it's definitely exciting to sort of hear how, you know, something that was such a sort of such a personal passion has become a lifelong career for you because I think it's rare that somebody can take their passion and turn it into their profession um in a life-sustaining way you know what I mean like so it may like some it's like fleeting moments you sometimes see that happening but it's very inspiring to see somebody who's taken that passion that they found early on and turned it into a career and is continuing to grow and evolve with that too not just letting it be stagnant but really continuing to explore where that passion and those skills may take you yeah. yeah, I'm amazed. I mean, it was never anything I did by design. I just, you know, I'm just very privileged, you know, to be able to, you know, take my love of climbing and turn it into um, a career and branch out into other professions. Um, you know, I'm very, very thankful for the opportunities that I've had. And it's great to be able to pass those opportunities on to other people who, you know, just need need a little introduction, a little push to go out there and, and uh, you know, be a part of something greater. Well, having taken one of your classes it's and worked with you personally, it's uh, not a surprise of your success because you're incredibly good at what you do. And it's exciting, and I'm excited to see all these other women and people who get to learn from you as well. It's very makes me makes me happy. And I, and I just want to know, just to be sure, are you now a Raider fan now that you've worked <laughs> in the cathedral, now that you've, you've been to the church and you've seen the altar and you understand the greatness and the beauty that is the Oakland, or now the... Las Vegas Raiders, are you an actual fan? <laughs> oh, you know, having been raised with three brothers and being force-fed football my whole entire life, um, I definitely have an appreciation for the game. 
we'll see what happens with the Raiders. I don't think they're allowing any audience uh, in the stadium, you know, for this opening season. But um, I definitely am emotionally invested in the team, um, just having been a part of building that shrine for all of its uh, followers. Great. I'm ex- that's great. Any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Life is short. Get out there and enjoy it. I think in the face of the of the pandemic, you know, it's really caused a lot of people out there to self-reflect and, you know, identify, you know, are they happy doing what they're doing? And I think this downtime, the quarantine period has been really um, helpful for a lot of people. It's probably been, you know, pretty hurtful for a lot of people as well. But um, it is, you know, anytime kind of self-reflection is a great way to get back to the root of your being and asking yourself, you know, am I happy doing what I'm doing? And if you're not happy doing what you're doing, then what can you do to make changes? Um, Because we only have a short amount of time on this planet and, um, you know, encourage everybody out there to get out there and, you know, follow their dreams, whatever that might be, because, you know, it's all could be gone in the blink of an eye. And Elena, if somebody's dream is to become a better climber or to climb with you or to learn from you, how would uh, people, we can, we'll uh, share this information in the show notes as well, but how do people go about finding you and hiring you as a guide or finding out when you're teaching an instructor course? Um, you can find me on social media, of course, uh, Instagram at Laners Climbs um, is my handle there. Um, you can also email me through New River Mountain Guides. It's Elena at NewRiverClimbing.com. Um, yeah, reach out on Facebook as well. You can find me there. Send me a message and um, I'd love to you know, help spreading, spread the stoke. Thanks, Elena. Thank you guys so much. It's been a pleasure talking with y'all. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almostthere underscore AP or the Almost There Adventure Podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at Adventurous Women. That's Adventure US Women. Jeff at The SoCal Hiker or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. Please make sure to check out our show notes for all of our episodes on our website, thealmosttheareadventurepodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks. As always, thanks for listening.